don't remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it like it was an hour ago. It was so intense and surreal. I can remember being at work, and what I can remember was this most intense head rush, really, really, really powerful. I know my eyes wouldn't move, and then I started to freeze. And I also came around briefly when the paramedics were there, and I said, I ain't going to hospital. And I remember him saying to me, you're going wherever we take you. And that's when I went out again. I wanted to get out of hospital. I didn't want to stay in there. No one wants to stay in hospital. So I did not want to stay in there, and I honestly thought I was going to die in there, um, which was a feeling that stayed with me for a long time. So I went in on the Wednesday, and I came out on the Sunday. For stroke survivors, you know, if you've recently had one, just don't give up. You're in there, right? You've done the hard bit. You've survived it. That's the hard bit. Hello, this is Stroke Stories, and I'm Mark Goodyear. In research, the Stroke Association have revealed that men are at a higher risk of suffering a stroke than women. They're also at a risk of having one at a younger age. 72 is the average for men, 78 for women. Deaths from strokes, though, have halved over the last year due to improvements in diagnosis and treatment. But still, as a survivor, you don't always have all the resources you feel you need. So we started Stroke Stories to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this episode, we'll hear from Dave Nathan, who suffered a stroke while at work in southwest London at the age of 44. I was working as a, one of the floor managers at Sainsbury's. I was with my me, me missus at the time with, with four kids, just doing what you do, you know, when you got that sort of setup, you know, everything was, was seemed to be rotated around work and the family. As a, as a lifestyle, I, you know, I, I don't smoke, you know, I don't, I don't do drugs or anything like that. My role was pretty active. I wasn't a couch potato. I was, you know, always up and about and, and work was pretty vigorous as well. And, of course, the kids kept me on my toes as well. So just normal, you know, no different than 90% of the population. I don't remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it like it was an hour ago. It was so intense and surreal. I can remember being at work and I can't tell you exactly what I did say. It was on a night shift, but someone had done something a bit wrong and I, I shouted out. And what I can remember was this most intense head rush, really, really, really powerful. There was no warning. I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel dizzy, no headache or anything. It was just boom. And the only way I can describe it is if someone was pumping a bicycle pump of hot water into the back of my head while someone blew a whistle in my ear like a dog whistle, and I knew I'd done something serious. I said to one of the colleagues, I tried to turn around, I knew one of my colleagues was working nearby, and I tried to turn to him, but my body wouldn't move and my eyes wouldn't move, and I said to him, drag me outside, I don't want to die in here, I think I'm having a stroke, and I meant drag me out into the road so someone could call an ambulance, but <laughs> the lazy sod only dragged me out into the warehouse, and then... It was really patchy. I, I, I know I, I can remember coming round a couple of times, and once I was trying to drag myself up the racking. I know my eyes wouldn't move, and then I, was, I started to freeze. And I also came round briefly when the paramedics were there, and I said, I ain't going to hospital. And I remember him saying to me, you're going wherever we take you. And that's when I went out again, and that was it. But it was so intense, so surreal. It's a feeling, like I say, I can remember it, you know, like it was an hour ago. Although Dave's condition was serious, he wanted to leave hospital as soon as possible. I wasn't in that long. I was unconscious for about 11 hours. And when I came round, 
they, they didn't give me much chance. They, they, they only give me, at one point, they only gave me 24 hours to live because I wasn't responding to anything. And when I did come round, I, I suppose some of it was, was down to my age. I, I was 44 when I had it, which is, you know, I know there's a lot younger that have had strokes, but as strokes go, it's still pretty young. I work in Collier's Wood, which is a stone's throw away from St. George's Hospital. So I was there really quick. And the fact I was at work, you know, they realised I was doing less work than usual because I was lying down. That means I was got to really quickly, got in hospital really quickly. I was given the clot buster really quickly. And I think I was in on the Wednesday and I was out on the Sunday. I managed to make a good enough recovery while I was in hospital. Not When I say recovery, things that would sort me out when I was at home. You know, I wasn't going to be on my own because obviously I had the missus and, and the kids and that. But I think they gave me a test on the Sunday. I walked down some stairs and make a cup of tea. And I made sure I did that. I, I wanted to get out of hospital. I didn't want to stay in there. No one wants to stay in hospital. So I did not want to stay in there. And I honestly thought I was going to die in there, um, which was a feeling that stayed with me for a long time. So I went in on the Wednesday and I came out on the Sunday, which was very, very quick. Did I come out too soon? At the time, I didn't think so. Looking back, yeah, definitely, definitely came out too quick. I had regular checkups, not just with physios and, and, and at St George's, but also Moorfields Eye Hospital because the stroke had unsynchronised my eyes. So I, I was looking like a chameleon. My eyes were going independently of each other. So every week I was back and having tests done, either motor skills or eye tests or just everything because nothing was responding, nothing was working properly. You know, those particular circuits and connections are gone. And that went on for about six months, I suppose. I did have physio. I didn't have it for very long, to be honest. And a big part of that was the denial on my part. My brain's gone through this massive trauma, but it's deep down, you know, I've got this little voice on my shoulder going, you you ain't that bad, don't worry. So, you know, and a typical bloke, you know, I never admit when anything's wrong with me. Um, And I was so far in denial, I was was, was saying, no, there's nothing wrong with me. You're going to be all right. You don't need this. You don't need that. And and a lot of it was self-teaching and trying to, recover what I'd lost by myself. I did one checkup once and there was a lot of questions they asked me and it was things like, you know, are you concerned with what people think, you know, how you're perceived and things like that. And I just put two lines for it and I can't tell you exactly what I wrote on it. But at the bottom of it, I just put, look, as long as it don't affect the kids. I, did, I just didn't want them upset. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still me, I'm, I'm still there for you, I'm still this pillar of, of, of support for you. But it was a test to see and I wish I hadn't been so blasé with it. It was a test to see if I was suffering with depression. And I was. I just didn't know I was. Very common. And, and, and it comes out of the frustrations that you feel. You know, yesterday I could pick that pen up and today I can't. And I don't know I can't until I go and do it. And, and, and you, you just can't work out why. So I did have depression. I can talk about it now at the time. Again, it was another thing that I was in denial of. You know, it sort of creeps up on you and grabs hold of you and, and drags you under. I was obviously signed off work for a long time, so I, I didn't really talk about it, and I didn't want to put it on anybody. I didn't want to put it on the missus. I wanted her to just carry on as normal. The kids, I just wanted them to carry on as normal. I, I'd never have put it on them anyway. But it's very lonely in your own head, very lonely. You you do need to talk about it. You do need to get it out, even if you're having trouble explaining it. You know, there, there were things that were happening that I only realised what was happening like six months later, eight months later, down the line when you start recovering and you realise, you know, why and, and how it happens, you know. If I've got one bit of advice, it is talk about it, get it out. You know, even if it's a struggle, even though, you you know, it's really hard to get your, your feelings and your emotions and your words out. 
because for the first couple of days I, I couldn't really talk. It sounded like I'd had about ten points. I was I was slurring. I I was having to spell the words out in midair with my finger and try and read them, but you just can't concentrate. And when I say words, I'm talking about the and you know it, it, you just couldn't. I just couldn't get me head together. The stroke had a serious emotional impact on Dave. It also affected his children. The kids, I could tell they was upset, you know, and this is probably one of the reasons I didn't talk about it because if I cut myself, they don't want to look because I've got a plaster on, you know, let alone that my right eye's sticking up in the air and I was really, really conscious that I was, this could be my last day on earth because I, I thought another one was in the post. When I slept, me and my missus sleep on the middle floor of the house and the kids are upstairs and, and we purposely sleep with our bed so our heads are visible. So if they're up in the middle of the night or something happens, you know, just for whatever reason they can see us. I was so conscious I was going to die in my sleep. I slept the other way around. I didn't want them coming up and walking in and seeing me dead in bed. That would haunt them for the rest of their lives. So all they could see was my feet. They knew I, I was in, but all they could see was my feet. Mrs. was a pillar of strength, you know, and I, and I kept saying to her, slow down, slow down. She got herself another job, a second job, because it, it was unclear if I was... You know, I didn't know if I was going back to work or not. And I was thinking, how do I provide, how do I, you know, keep it going? So she got herself a second job, but I think some of it was also to get away from the pressures of of me and the kids. That's what, that's what I personally think, you know. It doesn't just affect the person it happens to, it affects the family. It affects loads of people, you know, the people that care for you, the people that love you. It's really hard for them as well because you can't explain what's happening to you. The only way to understand it is to go through it, and I do not wish it on anybody. I do not want anybody to understand it, and I mean that sincerely, because the only way you can understand it is to go through it. Dave's main aim during his recovery was to get back to normal life as quickly as possible. I wanted to go back to work. I couldn't see. I had amazing double vision. I had no depth perception, so I'm talking to you now and you're, what, two foot away. But I couldn't tell if you were two foot away or, or in the next room. It was it was really hard to gauge any, any sort of distance. My peripheral vision had gone. But I wanted to go back to work because I felt like I'd become detached from society. You know, I, I, I wanted to be part of something. I wanted to be part of the family. I wanted to be part of work. It was very important. But saying that at the same time, hindsight's a wonderful thing. If I'd have taken a little bit more time and took things a little bit easier and, and perhaps didn't worry so much, you know, you, we all heal at different speeds. You know, the doctors will tell you this this imaginary thing. I've spoken to a lot of stroke survivors and, and they keep coming up with this three-month thing, which, you know, I'm still making improvements now and it's five years down the line. You know, don't think of three months. You, you know, we're all different. We all heal at different speeds. And don't put extra pressure on yourself. You've got enough to worry about. Just take your time, listen to your body and remember your limits and, and your limits change as you go. I wasn't ready for things. There was lots I couldn't do, but I only knew I couldn't do them when I went to do it. So you could say to me something like, Dave, pick up that pen and I'd just look at you. I wouldn't have a clue. I know I've got to do it, but I haven't got a clue how to do it. Nothing was responding. That particular connection in my brain had gone. I don't think I was strong enough. I don't think I was well enough and... Confidence-wise as well, I was shot to pieces on every level. And, it, and it's confidence of things like, you know, do I eat this? Is this going to trigger something? You know, oh, hang on a minute, I've got to bend down and pick something up. Is that going to trigger something? You know, your confidence just goes on every, every level. This little voice on my shoulder was going, don't worry, mate, you know, you'll be back at work by Christmas, you're all right. You know, it's not that bad. And then it starts arguing with itself, saying, you know, slow down, you are, you are bad. My biggest switch-on moment was on one motor skill test that I did. It was about six weeks after my stroke 
And I had to sit there and put blocks on top of each other with my left hand, like the same way you see a toddler do when they're playing. And I'm knocking them over and spilling them on the floor, and I can't tell if this one's over here or another two foot back, and I, I just couldn't do it. And I got so frustrated, and I just swept them all off the table and said, you know, words to the effect of, you know, I can't do this. And the doctor just put his hand on my shoulder nice and calmly and went, you can't do this yet. And yet was the biggest word I ever learnt. And I put that in a lot of things that I do, yet. It's such a massive word. Don't put pressure on yourself. You can't do it. That particular system's still rebooting. You know, it'll come back in time. You've just got to be so positive and so patient. Although Dave's stroke took him to the very edge, his focus was to make sure that his partner and children were able to continue with life as normal. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Dave reveals how powerful sharing your story can be. I've had people come into work and shake my hand, people that have had strokes and said, you know, thanks so much, you know, it's, it's helped me explain it a little bit better to their family. And one bloke came in, he said, yeah, it's just like sitting down talking to you in a pub, which is what I wanted. And how, after his stroke, he stopped making plans. I sort of take each day as it comes now. I realised that that happened. There was no reason why I had the stroke, nothing definitive they can put it down to, which was really hard for me to deal with at first. Um, you know, what do I stay away from? What do I need to change? What do I need to do differently? But when I thought about it, it became the easy bit. There's nothing I need to stay away from, so just be sensible. Let's hear how Dave put his family first. As long as I was all right and I could get it through to them and be there for them, that was more important than my friends. And again, it was about their understanding. And, and I didn't want them understanding. You know, to understand it, like I said, you've got to go through it. I, d I don't want anybody to go through it. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's a game changer in every single aspect you can imagine. And, you know, my mates were, were very sympathetic. And, you know, we still went out and had a, you know, we had a good time as far as I was able to. But the understanding, and, it, and it's not just from friends, it, it can be from medical people, it can, you know, the medical people do an amazing job, you know, I, I despise people that knock them, they, they do an amazing, amazing job to show you that, that much humility and professionalism and, and just a will to help you, but there's such a lack of understanding, and the reason is, we've touched on it, no one talks about it. Considering where I was, I've made a really good recovery, I've got a lot of people to thank, like me, me checkups and the medical teams and, and also my family for showing me love and support. The effects I've got now, five years later, I can't see properly out of my right eye. I knew that. They, they had to operate on me on my right eye. I had to take it out. I'm not going to describe it. It was pretty, pretty gruesome, but it done the trick. I didn't care as long as I could see properly again. I get a crazy kind of vertigo. I get really dizzy at times and I completely lose my space awareness and, and the room starts spinning. And a good example is if I'm crossing the road, if I look right, and there's nothing there, and then you hear a noise, you, you, you're immediately drawn to the right, and I just lose, lose my bearings completely, I get really dizzy, I hesitate a lot as well, that's why I don't drive, because one, I can't see anyway, so I wouldn't even think about it, but, you know, if I hesitate, as a kid walks out in front of me, you know, and, and I'd, I'd never be able to live with myself, so I'm aware I hesitate, but I, I get around it with, like someone will say to me, hello Dave at work, and I've known him for like 10, 15 years, and I'll go, hello mate, how you doing? You know, I can't remember their name, it's not clicking, but I'll just go, hello mate, and I've, I've learned little things to get around those hesitations. It gets better with time, it's not as bad as it was, but it's, I'm aware it's still there. I can't remember the last time I walked to work in a straight line, I, I do veer left and right, that's, that's, that's to do with my balance. My stroke was in my thalamus, which controls most of the messages going in and out. 
um, and deals with your five senses and your survival stuff. So it also regulates your sleep patterns. So a big thing that wasn't mentioned is, is the post-stroke fatigue. It is really hard to deal with. You sort of get, you get used to it and it gets better with time, but I still get it now. I can be sitting here reading the paper or whatever and I'll just feel like I'm, I, the energy has just been drained out of me like, like air leaving a balloon. You just got to understand it. You know, your brain's trying to run so many different systems at once. Your breathing, your your, your digestion, your heartbeat doesn't need to worry about. You know, who, who was on the telly last night, or you know, what what six down is in the crossword. It will just shut those bits down, and you just get this most amazing feeling of of. It's not even tiredness; it's exhaustion. Thankfully, that's all I've really got. You know, my motor skills are, are pretty good. I'm back at work, which was such a milestone for me. I don't say achievement. I don't say target. It's milestone. You know, it takes different people different times. And when it does happen, you celebrate it as a milestone. You know, when your kid's born, you don't say, right, I want you walking in six months. But when it finally takes its first steps, you celebrate that milestone. And I think that's the same with recovery from it, from any serious illness, especially stroke. If you can do something, even if it's like, you know, picking up a pen that you couldn't do you know, a couple of months ago, and they celebrate that as a milestone. Every little plus to someone else is a massive plus to you. Dave wanted to share his story to help others, so he wrote a book called The World Through One Eye. When I was recovering, we've already mentioned that I didn't use any outside assistance, so I try to look up stuff online, try to look up books, because you ask yourself a lot of questions. You know, is this normal? How long does this last? You know, how many people have got this? Is this common, et cetera, et cetera? And, and it's the most ridiculous questions you ask yourself. And, it, and it's your confidence that is why you're doing it. It's taking an absolute battering. And when I was looking, I couldn't find anything. I'm sure there's stuff out there, but I couldn't find anything in what I call layman's terms. So I, as I could remember everything, and, and at the time I thought I was a, you know, a bit younger than perhaps a lot of people that had suffered strokes, I decided to write a book. I wanted it honest. And I purposely don't name anybody in it because I want the reader, if you've gone through something similar, I want you to put your own people into positions. So if I said something like, you know, woke up in the morning and couldn't do breakfast, Auntie Molly came in and made me breakfast, that sort of shuts it down. But if I say I couldn't do something, so someone had to come in and help me, the reader can go, oh, yeah, so-and-so comes in and does that, and it makes them more part of the story. And I wanted people to be able to relate to stuff. Like I said, you know, the physical outcomes are, are completely different and, and some are unique and some are, you know, perhaps you're the only one in a million that's had that physical ailment. But the mental side of it, I think, is the frustrations, the, in my case, the depression, just the sheer what the hell is going on. If the reader can identify with a paragraph or a line or a word or something that switches a light on for them and goes, bloody hell, yeah, that, that happened to me and now I'm, I've got a rough idea why... I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical expert, it's not a how-to guide, right? It's just my story of what happened to me. And if you can relate to it, then the book's done its job. I was going to use the ghostwriter. By chance, I went to a football match in Southampton. I missed my train on the way back and ended up in a pub in Kingston on the way back to Wimbledon. I met a ghostwriter in a pub just by chance, and I thought, well, this is a bit chancy. So I thought I'd, I'd use her to... I asked her if she, if she fancied doing it. The problem with that is she started asking me questions and I thought, you, you're going to put this in your own words. And I didn't want it in anybody else's words but mine. And then I went home and I saw uh, a documentary with Johnny Lydon. And he, he said on there that um, they wanted him to sing with an American accent at one of his demos or something. And he said it wouldn't sound like me. 
And I saw something similar with Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters, and they were playing around with his voice on the, on the electrics, and he said, no, leave it, it doesn't sound like me. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do with a book. It's got to sound like me. It's got to sound like you're sitting down like we are now, just chatting about it. I don't want it bamboozled with medical stuff. I just want it in plain layman terms. So when I say, you know, there's not a lot of medical terms, but there is a little bit of plain Anglo-Saxon in there. You'll understand what I mean. But the other thing was, is it's not a massive book, but when you have your stroke, you can't concentrate on anything. So I wasn't going to write a massive, great war and peace. I wrote it out first in pen, just sitting over the pub every so often, you know, writing down what I could remember, which was virtually everything. And then I chopped all the fat away with it and just kept it nice and factual. The first chapter is about me having a stroke. The second chapter, my other half wrote, I wanted someone else's input into it. So she describes her feelings during the 11 hours I was unconscious. And I really did not want to read it. I had to, just to make sure it fitted in with what I wanted from the book. I, I, I wasn't going to change any words. But I didn't want anybody's name in it. I didn't want. Um, I just wanted it honest, and it shocked me. I really didn't want to read it, but I did, and I'm glad I did. And then the rest of it's about my recovery when I came round in hospital, when I got home, and how I felt when I got home, going back to work. There's a chapter in there where I, I try to top myself. I'd, I'd, I'd got to that point in my depression where I thought I can't stand this anymore. You know, I did have suicidal thoughts. There's a chapter in there. I did a, a 10 kilometer run for Stroke Association. I wanted to give something back. I wanted to give something back to a, to a system that I felt I'd taken so much out of. So I did a, a charity run for them. I did a resolution run in Hyde Park. And there's a little bit on how I am now. I've had people come into work and shake my hand, people that have had strokes and said, you know, thanks so much. You know, it's, it's helped me explain it a little bit better to their family. And one bloke came in, he said, yeah, it's just like sitting down talking to you in a pub, which is what I wanted. I sort of take each day as it comes now. I realised that that happened. There was no reason why I had the stroke, nothing definitive they can put it down to, which was really hard for me to deal with at first. Um, you know, what do I stay away from? What do I need to change? What do I need to do differently? But when I thought about it, it became the easy bit. There's nothing I need to stay away from, so just be sensible. But I'm aware, like when I said I was sleeping the other way round, and when I wanted to come out of hospital because I was convinced I was going to die, I know I could have another one. Anyone can have another one tonight. You know, it sounds horrible, but that's the brutal truth. So future, yeah, I might book holiday for a couple of months' time. That's about as far as my future plans go. I've gone back to work. I do not do the same role. I'm, they, you know, they were really good to me, and I go back now. I, I'm one of the just the guys on the floor, and I'm just so glad to be doing what I do, and I've got no stress. I think that was a major factor in me having my stroke was the amount of stress. You don't realise what stress is until they take it away from you. When you see people in interviews or on the telly going, yeah, I, I can handle stress, you ain't got a clue. You know, that's your brain telling you. Your body just one day will go, no, I'm shutting you down. I've had enough of this, I can't do this. And, and it will. Finally, Dave believes that as a stroke survivor, you need to stay positive and keep pushing. For stroke survivors, you know, if you've recently had one, just don't give up. You're in there, right? You've done the hard bit, you've survived it. That's the hard bit. What you've got now, you've got a long, long road. Listen to what the experts tell you, but don't be hung up on this three-month thing because it might take a little bit longer, it might be a little bit quicker. Who knows? You know, your brain is this amazing complex organ, much better than any computer with, with flashing lights and that. When you reboot a computer, you, you hit a button, a couple of months later, boop, 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 it all pops back on. Your brain might take weeks, months, years, maybe never for certain bits to come back. So... Do everything in your own time. Don't get yourself stressed out. Just keep nice and positive. 
keep nice and patient, and remember that word yet. Everything you can't do, you just can't do yet. As far as loved ones goes, you, you're, the person you love who's had a stroke, they're still in there. You know, they, they may not be able to communicate it, they may not be able to tell you exactly how they feel. They don't know how exactly how they feel. It's, it's, you know, they, 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 they can't get to grips with it, but your, your loved one is in there. So talk to them, be there for them, and just be nice and patient with them. And, and, and like I say, celebrate milestones. Don't look at targets. Don't call it a target. Milestones. A couple of months ago, I couldn't pick my cup of tea up. Now I can pick my cup of tea up. Brilliant. Celebrate it. It's a game changer. Your confidence will be smashed to bits on every level. But it does get better. It does get better. If you're patient and you're positive, it gets better. Dave is passionate about sharing his story wherever he goes to help other survivors realise they're not alone. If you'd like to learn more about stroke, search online for the Stroke Association and for a dedicated webpage, search NHS Stroke. And we'd be grateful if you'd subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and rate and comment on each episode. That will help us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.